right, thank you, Brent. Grab the Heavenly Library, if you would, please, and take down the book of 2 Samuel. Throwing you a curveball tonight, we're going Old Testament, or as they used to say, the Old Bible. But we're going to be looking at a story that may actually be new to many of us. So while you're turning over to that passage, I want to share with you just a quick quote from the Apostle Peter. And from what we know in history, these words may actually be the last written words that Peter shared upon this earth. At the end of 2 Peter and in chapter 3, we find this admonition. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. Now, just stop right there and think about it. Does, does Peter know what it's like to be led away? Yeah, absolutely. Does he know what it's like to be way overconfident and to fall from that pedestal of confidence? Yeah, exactly. Does he know this feeling? Does he know this trap? Yes. So it shouldn't surprise us that Peter calls us back to this thought as his final written words. And here's how you avoid that. Here's what he goes on to say. Grow. Grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. You know, when I hear that, I go, I get that as well. Especially the part about growing in knowledge. That's what we're doing right now, right? We always gather together. We want to dig into the Word. We want to encourage one another. And I can see how growing in knowledge would be a great asset to my walk with the Lord. And, and, and you can grow in knowledge, right? It can increase. It's, it's like a cup that can never get too full. But he also said grow in grace. And I find that very intriguing. Can grace grow like knowledge? Is there a way that we can actually grow in grace like we grow in our maturity and our walk with the Lord or knowledge? Well, I believe we can. And I believe that's exactly what Peter is encouraging all of us to do. So tonight we're going to go to the Old Testament. And, and we're going to study a story. Let me just give you a quick heads up as I read through this story with you tonight. And again, it may be new to many of you. I, I need to kind of warn you, you're not going to see the word grace in the text. Let me just throw that out there to you. Here, this guy's obviously talking about grace. He's expanding on grace. Well, where is it? Okay, it's not going to be there by a single word. But I truly believe you will see it in the text. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said to the king, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is this son of Jonathan 
but he's crippled in his feet. When you get to this story, I want us to just stop right here and consider a context. The king is obviously King David, and we're very early on in the reign of David. But here's what's amazing. He is a very young king, but at this point of his kingdom, and he hadn't been a king for too many years at all. In fact, probably hadn't been years, really. He's already taken a divided kingdom, and he's united it. All of his enemies have been pushed away. He is a conquering hero. In fact, the text will tell us in previous chapters, he's already made a name for himself. You might say his approval rating is through the roof. And even more importantly, as a man of God, he's led the people through a spiritual revival. The Ark of the Covenant had been in the hands of of the enemy, and then it was actually in the hands of the uh, Israelites, but nobody wanted to go get it because you know what it was like to get it when God was displeased with you. So it just sat vacant, and so David is actually gone, and he's brought it back. So this is a guy who's at the height of his kingdom. If he had an approval rating, it's probably running 99.999%. He's killing it. But he's not happy. He's not content. Because what he does is he remembers a promise. Now, if you know anything about David, and especially his his, his younger life, especially when you go back to the David and Goliath incident, who who did he become an immediate friend with right after he killed Goliath? Anybody remember? Well, Jonathan, right? They were knit to the soul, and they became extremely, extremely close friends. And Jonathan could see, okay... I can see where this is headed. I know what's going to happen. My dad's not a good man. My dad's throne has actually been taken away from him. He's conceded and given it to, to, to David. It's, it's, it, you can kind of see that. And so he says, all right, all right, David, David, do me a favor. Let's make a pact. Let's make a covenant. Take care of my family. Well, whatever happens, you take care of my family. In fact, what's interesting, if you go back and look at that agreement, that covenant when they made it together, here's exactly how Jonathan said it in 1 Samuel 20. He said, do not cut off your kindness from my house. Kindness. Actually, a great word study in the Hebrew. Notice David says to Ziba, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? Well, kindness isn't just, hey, there anybody can just be nice to Well, he is definitely wanting to be nice. But that word can also imply covenant faithfulness. I've made a promise. I have made a covenant. And I'm going to keep it. So is there anyone? Is there anyone left in the house of Saul or Jonathan that I don't know about? Is there anyone out there that I can show this kindness too. Now, if you would, I want you to go back and notice something in verse 3. What does Ziba do? Ziba goes, I know a guy! But he's not your guy. Well, is he related? Is he related? Yeah, yeah, but I'm telling you, he's not your guy. What's the deal? He's lame. He's like, I don't know what you're looking for, King. You're looking for a warrior. You're looking for somebody to fight for you. Somebody to stand up in your administration. He in your guy. Now, let me stop for a second. Let me stop real quick and let's make a little application. Have you ever sized somebody up by their appearance or what you think you know about them? 
play a little hypothetical with you for a moment. Let's say Brent's been doing this series on evangelism and he's got you all fired up. And after a few Sundays of him really encouraging and lighting a fire to you, you wake up one Monday morning and you're like, yes, I'm going to go out and save the world. Here I go. Boy, Lord, help me. You can say a prayer. You eat breakfast. Lord, you point them to me. You point them to me. I'm going to go get them. And you're dragging your trash out and you're looking. You're going out to the curb. And there it is. Yes, 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 that guy. Oh, you get so excited. You Yes, my neighbor. And you're about to walk over to him and then you hear he's carrying out his recycling. And you hear the clanging around of all the bottles. And you go, oh, that's right. He's, he's got a little problem there. Ah, he's probably not going to be interested. I'll look somewhere else when you go to work. Then you go to work and you get all excited and you're sitting in the office and you're looking around. And go, oh, yes, her. Oh, we've talked about spiritual things at the water cooler before. And you start going, well, well, wait a minute. Yeah, but she's got all these issues at home. In fact, she has a problem with her marriage and this, that, and the other, and who knows what. And then, and then you look over here, you look over here, and you get home at the end of the day and go, man, I'd have really loved to reach out to somebody, but there's nobody out there to reach out to. We've all done that, haven't we? David didn't ask for a scouting report. He just said, is there anyone? Is there there any one continue reading and the king said to him where is he i don't care how lame he is i don't care what his condition is where is he and ziba said to the king he's in the house of makir the son of amiel at lodabar then the king sent and he brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, Elodovar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face. And he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear! I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you'll eat at my table always. And he continued to pay homage. Mephibosheth wouldn't get off the ground. And he says, what is your servant? That you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Oh, is this guy low? I don't know if you get any lower. What's interesting is he's, he's living up to his name. This is kind of crazy. You know what Mephibosheth means? Big shame. Who names their kid that? <laughs> who, who names their kid Big Shame? Oh, my word. Now, Ishbosheth would have been his uncle, the son of shame. Maybe he, got, maybe he has a family name that's running down. Shame. Who names their kid Shame? I did kind of get a little excited when I was studying this. You may think, what does my name mean? You know, Philip's kind of the original name. I go by Philip, but Philip, and I think, you know, Alexander the Great, the conquering hero, had a daddy named Philip. This is probably some Greek origin. Maybe it means six foot, six foot four warrior. You know what I'm saying? Big bulk of a hero kind of dude, you know? Oh, gigantor or something. You may know what Philip means? Lover of horses. Lover <laughs> of horses. That doesn't sound tough at all. I, I made the mistake of sharing that with Don Truex. Now, when he introduces me before people, he goes, Tonight I introduce you, Phil, who AKA's name means my little pony. <laughs> no. 
No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Man. Mom and Dad, what were you thinking? Pure opinion. Pure opinion. I'm not sure everybody that we read about in Scripture was probably literally given that name at birth. Pure opinion. I can't help but think of Nabal. <laughs> His name means what? Fool? Was he born in love with that is one dumb kid? That's a fool. Then did she really name him? or did people give him that name because that how he acted? Just just throwing that out there to you. Pure opinion. But here's what we know about Mephibosheth. He was living up to that name. His life was filled with big shame. He would be orphaned at a very young age. In fact, he wasn't born lame. You know the story? He wasn't born lame. He was born healthy. But when the news got back to the castle that his dad had died and his grandfather had died in battle, there's no longer a king. Everybody scattered. And the text tells us that a nurse dropped the young child. That's all it says he was dropped. Was he dropped from a high precipice? Was he dropped in the crowd and trampled? I don't know. He was just dropped. But he was left lame in both feet. And somehow, some way, this boy drags his lame body up to a place called Lodabar. Now again, it's mentioned in the text. Lodabar. Names have meaning. Lodabar, if you were to look in your Bible maps, you probably wouldn't find it because it would be out east of the Jordan River. So if you were to go from the, the you know Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and you were kind of go east that direction and keep going east out in the desert, it was a place of rocks. In fact, uh, uh, the, the, the prophets in the Old Testament will make fun of anybody who thinks they have something if they live in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar means what? No pasture. All right. Bible Economics 101. Ready? If you have no pasture, you have no no sheep, no flocks, no herds. If you have no flocks, you have no herds, you have what? You have no food, you have no money. It's a wasteland for the weary. It's a place you go when you have no hope. And it's a place you go to hide. Can you imagine what the word was when... Mephibosheth is hiding somewhere in a theoretical under a rock. And somebody says, hey, the king wants you. Which king? Well, the king that took over after your granddad. That king. He wants me? What's he want me for? What generally happened in a pagan world to the children of the previous regime when a new family took over. That's a long ride back. So what does he do? Well, he does what anybody would do. He falls on his face and begins begging for mercy. It doesn't matter how many times the king goes, Hey! Hey, Mephibosheth! Come here, son! Oh, man, it's so good! To... It, hey, he's on his face. Because he sees himself as a dead dog. 
And here's what's interesting about that. I don't need to define that for you. Do you? (laughs) That's had the same meaning throughout time. That ain't good. It's worthless. A dead dog. Now let me stop again and make a little application. You ever thought like that? You ever had a moment in your life where you let Satan grab hold of your heart and pull you to places you never had any intention to go? A good friend of mine, Tommy Peeler, every time he preaches, he'll probably talk about sin. It'll take you farther than you ever wanted to go. And when you found yourself in that pit, covered with guilt and shame, you know what this feels like. I'm worthless. I've hurt myself and I've hurt other people. And I can't make up for it. I can't make up for it. Our story doesn't end there. David refuses to allow it to end there. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba. Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all my Lord, the king commands his servant. So your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Can you see that? Do you see what just happened? I think sometimes when we're reading stories, it's really hard for us to grasp exactly, exactly what has taken place here. I I want you to do me a favor, just for a moment, just for a moment, okay? I want you to use your imagination. Just use your imagination with me for a moment. I want you to imagine that David has decided to hold a big, fancy state dinner at the palace, all right? Imagination. We're going to imagination, all right? And he invites people from all over the land to come. And all the dignitaries who are the big stuff dignitaries come. And they come in their big fancy chariots. In fact, some of them come in the Tesla. It doesn't even have horses in front of it. It just rolls up there. They're big time folks. And they all come in. And they are dressed to the hilt. And the band is playing. The tapestries are hung. The feast has been set. And you, you, you feel like you are somebody. Because you're there. You're with the who's who. And man... This is the happening place. And then the king walks out and the place just goes quiet. And you see the king stand at his place at the table and he welcomes his guest. 
And then here come his children. Solomon comes in from the side. Probably in a book with spectacles. Amnon really was the first to come in. The oldest. Kind of cocky. He scrolls in and kind of looks around at people. And Tamar comes in wearing the latest Gucci of Jerusalem dress. <laughs> Absalom comes in. He's already done 50 push-ups. So he's got the veins coming in his biceps so he can look good in his Goldilocks as he stands out there. You know, kids. And then you see there's one empty seat. That's all of them. Who we miss? And this frail little boy comes in, dragging his feet. And he stands beside the king, and the king puts his arm around him, looks to the crowd and says, Ladies and gentlemen, my son, I made that up. Okay, I know Solomon hasn't been born yet. Alright, don't go looking for it. Don't write me up. I made it up. But I think sometimes we need to stop and really grasp what's happening. Lodabar to the palace. Forgotten to festive. Exile to son. Recluse to redeemed. Forgotten to forgiven. See, the story isn't just about a man of humility. It's about a king. And and what you see in the attitude of this king is this is a king who accepts the humble regardless of their shame. You know what it's also a very strong picture of? Another king. Another king. In James 4 and in verse 6, here's what it says of our king. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Proverbs 22, 11, He who loves purity of heart has grace on his lips and the king will be his friend. And not only is the king humbly accepting those who are humble, he's restoring honor and privilege. Look back at the story. Here's what we're going to do, Mephibosheth. Everything that belonged to your family, you get. In fact, Ziba, you and all your sons, you're working for him. Remember Ziba. Fifteen sons, twenty servants. You all work for Mephibosheth. Everything has been restored to you. Again, think of our king. Psalms 84 verse 11. For the Lord God is the sun and the shield. And the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, may He perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In my favorite psalm, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities and redeems your life from destruction and crowns you. With loving kindness and compassion. 
But the king doesn't stop there. It's not just about forgiveness and come back. It's not just about privileges. It's about adoption. The lame is now family. Family. Again, listen to our king as it speaks of his relationship to us. Romans 8, verses 14 and following. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, We will also be glorified together. There isn't one word of grace in that story, is there? I didn't read it. But every word is about grace. And isn't it amazing that a long time ago, in a simple, obscure story, our Lord was pointing forward to us. I want to leave you with four quick take-homes, all right? Four quick take-homes, growing in grace. Remember, that's what Peter said. I want you to grow in grace. I want you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, we all need to be reminded that all of us are lame. All of us are lame. Who's lame? All of us. Everybody. All of us. All of us. Be careful of trying to expect other people to be perfect. Be careful of trying to hold people up to a status that even you can't hold on to. We need to be mindful that every single one of us have challenges. And this is not a hotel for saints. This is a hospital for sinners. And we need to be reminded that every single one of us have been a Mephibosheth. Every single one of us. Elders aren't perfect. Preachers aren't perfect. This isn't a license to sin. Don't get me wrong. We're not going to continue in sin. So grace may abound. May it never be. But we're going to be people who extend grace. Extend grace. That grace will be on our lips. And we remember all of us are lame. And secondly, oh man, grace can be multiplied when it's shared. Uh, just real quickly, anybody here have a younger brother or sister that's really annoying? Yeah, okay, all right. Some of you can probably identify with that. I'm the oldest in my family. My brother's two years younger than me. But by the time I was four, he was two. He was bigger than me. And I'm the only older child through the history of the world that got hand-me-ups. <laughs> Instead of getting to share hand-me-downs, big punk. Gets worse. He's a super nice guy. I hate that. When I was 15, he was 13. We were opening Christmas presents, and uh, I got my dad. You know, you get your dad a tie. Come on. That's all I have. Mean, get a tie. Dad, there's a tie. 
Mary and Todd went into the other room and pulled out this big box for Dad. It was a big box. I went, oh, brother, this is one of those jokes where you open a big box and there's another box and there's another box. I'm like, come on, Todd, get it going, man. It's just going to be a tie, too. My dad opened the first box and he went, Todd. And he reached in and pulled out a brand new set of golf clubs. I grabbed Todd. I yanked him in the dining room and I said, what are you doing? Where are the kids? Where are the kids? They give us golf clubs. Good night. What are you going to do next year? You thought of that? No, you hadn't thought ahead. (laughs) When we were living in Melbourne, this is many years later, Todd calls, and I knew he had been dating this girl for a while. And he said, hey, just letting you know that Laura and I are getting married. I said, oh, Todd, I'm so excited for you. Cheryl and I are so excited. This is, oh, that's great. He goes, we're getting married in Hawaii. And I went, have fun. <laughs> Y'all are going to have a great, send us pictures. Then he goes, I want you to perform the ceremony. And I went, oh, am I going to have to take Cheryl? That's going to be, a, and the kids, do Jill and Gray really need to go? You know, you have that moment there, you're, you're all of a sudden adding it up. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And Todd goes, hey, we're flying all of you out. We're taking care of everything. I went, Todd. That's all I'm going to tell you about my brother. He's my brother. You're not going to find him. But you get that, don't you, folks? You know that blessings... Grow when you share them. It's more blessed to what? Give than what? Receive. Sirs, I want you to think about. The greatest treasure you have right now is the grace of God that was given to you. Don't keep it to yourself. It grows the more you give it away. It grows and expands and multiplies and multiplies. Even Peter will speak of grace upon grace. Share it. Give it freely. Give it in your relationships. Give it in your conversations. Give the gospel of grace. And grace is more than just salvation. Just stop and think and look around at all the grace that is in your life right now. These little hands, these little arms that hug you, it's grace. The air you breathe is grace. Every, every day, it's all grace. The sun that shines, it's grace. Isn't it amazing how dependent we are every day on our Lord's grace and He surrounds us with so much love. So much goodness all around us. So much that we don't deserve. Just stop and look around you. In fact, anybody here want to get filthy rich? Seriously, anybody want to get filthy, filthy rich right now? I've got the greatest get rich quick scam ever. And it's not a scam. It's real. It's real. You ready? Count your blessings. You'll be loaded. You'll be loaded. Because there's so much grace around us. And then there's this. Three times in the story, three times, David made it clear to Mephibosheth, to Ziba, 
and to everyone in the kingdom. He sits at my table. Because grace is being loved and invited to the table. One of the things that Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross was this. Behold, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. You know what we get to do every time we come together as the saints on the Lord's Day? We sit at the King's table. And he puts his arm around you. And he proudly shares to everyone, my child. My child. We call it grace. Grace. We're going to close this lesson with an invitation. But here's what I'd like for you to think about. Many of you have probably grown up in church and probably many of you have been Christians for many years. Some of you may not be. And I hope, I hope, I hope you are listening. Have you ever heard of the steps of salvation? Anybody ever heard that phrase, steps of salvation? What's the first one? Don't say it out loud. It's not hearing. It's not hearing. First step of salvation is grace. Grace. And can I encourage all of us in the Lord's church? I know that the world around us has taken this biblical concept and twisted it. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But don't be afraid to say grace. And don't be afraid to say we're saved by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The second step of salvation is mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. The mercy, the merciful love of God Third step, Jesus. He's the embodiment of grace and truth. And we learn all about it through the words of the Holy Spirit in the Word. As James says, the Word that is able to save your souls. That's what you hear. That's what you believe. That's why you repent. And that's why you confess Jesus. And allow Him to wash your sins away. And bring you into the family. So number 10. You live faithfully to the King all your life. What if Mephibosheth went, Hmm. No. That's nice. And go back to Lodabar. Don't go back to Lodabar. Come to the King. The covenant faithful King. Who wants to show each and every one of us. His kindness. The kindness 
the kindness that you see here in this story of grace. If you need to come to your king tonight, won't you come while we stand and sing?